Good to be with you tonight. Thank you all for being here, especially for our visitors. We appreciate you for making this a priority, leaving a, a family event and, uh, and worshiping God. We appreciate that priority, and we hope that the things we say tonight are an encouragement to you. You've been an encouragement to us already, so thank you for being here tonight. Everyone's an encouragement this year, so thank you. Well, when we are giving instructions to our kids, we have to be careful. We have to make sure that uh, we are clear with the instructions we give them. We don't contradict other instructions that we've given them and that we are understandable when we give our kids instructions. We want them to be obedient, and so we got to make sure as parents that we're being very clear. And sometimes when they don't obey our instructions, I'm sure every parent in here has said, well, what part of no didn't you understand? What part of don't do that did you not understand? Because we try to be very clear with our instructions, and so when kids don't understand, we go, why didn't you understand? Well, we believe the Bible is clear in its instructions to us, yet there are still a lot of people in the religious world today, and sadly some in the church, who argue with what the Bible teaches. In spite of how clear the Bible is on subjects at hand that we're discussing, some will still take question with that, and still some will argue about what the Bible teaches on clearly stated subjects. So tonight, I thought we'd spend a little bit of time assuming that the antagonist is correct. Assuming that the antagonist is correct, that the Bible is too hard to understand on certain subjects. Let's assume that that assumption is correct and then ask the question, well, what would God have to say about that subject to make it clear in your mind? If the Bible is so difficult to understand on a wide variety of subjects, then answer the question will is in any certain subject that we're going to talk about tonight. For example, let's assume that the Bible doesn't teach homosexuality is sinful. There are a lot of religious people in the world today who believe that this in spite of what the scriptures teach so plainly. We believe the Bible teaches that homosexuality is sinful, but for purposes of discussion tonight, let's assume that it doesn't. Let's assume the Bible doesn't say homosexuality is sinful. What would God have to say for, in order for you to believe that it is sinful? Do you see where we're going with the discussion tonight? Let's start with this subject of homosexuality. If you say the Bible is too hard to understand and we can't determine if God is in favor of homosexuality or is, he's not, what would he have to say to convince you that homosexuality is sinful? He said in Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one for another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. God said that these people gave themselves up to vile passions, and they did something that is not natural, and they committed something that is shameful. But if the Bible is still too unclear on this subject of homosexuality, then answer the question for us, what would God have to say? How would he have to express it so that you could come to the conclusion that God does not approve of homosexuality? The Bible is very clear about it, isn't it? Homosexuality is not a new sin. It was a problem in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's where we get the term, and the Bible uses the term sodomy. 
They were condemned because of their homosexuality. Many people today try to justify homosexuality by saying the Bible doesn't uh, address this subject because it's something new and different. No, it's not. The, the sin has been around forever or ever since time has begun almost. And it is condemned throughout the Scriptures. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says it this way, For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Those who commit sodomy, are condemned in this passage. If God isn't clear about what He thinks about homosexuality, how would He state it any differently than 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10? And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about some folks who were Christians, and they had come from a background of all kinds of sins, and one of those sins was homosexuality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning of verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It says here that homosexuals are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. If God wanted to tell us, that homosexuality is wrong, what would he have to say? How would he have to phrase it different than what he said in the Bible? The Bible's clear, isn't it? He couldn't say it any more clear than he has. Homosexuality is not acceptable to God. And if we want to be pleasing to him, we cannot commit this sin. I want to tell you something, another area that people like to say is all fuzzy and gray, and that is the subject of marriage. And in our society, marriage is disposable. People go in and out of marriage without any, uh, without any hesitation. People make the excuse, well, God just wants me to be happy. Or I can't see that God would want me to stay in this marriage if I don't want to stay in this marriage. Or how about this? The wife and I are just fighting so much we think it would be better for the kids if we would divorce. You hear that one before? All kinds of reasons are given why marriages are disposable. And sadly, that's crept into the church. And folks today are beginning to accept marriage, divorce for any Matthew chapter. But the Bible is clear, we believe, in passages like Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 9. Matthew chapter 19, beginning of verse 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He said unto them, Moses, because of your heart, the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. What is God's design for marriage? Not how 
men have perverted marriage, but what was God's design from the beginning? What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They are one flesh, and they are joined together. And whosoever will put away his wife except before fornication and marry another commits adultery. That's God's design. But if you want to say, how would God have to state it so that you would understand that he designed marriage to be permanent? That's the question, and that's the obligation of one who would say the Bible is not clear on the subject. Well, how would God say it so that we could understand his intention and his will? In Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 31. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let, her, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Does God approve of divorce for any cause? Not from this passage. In Luke chapter 16, verse 18, in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. The Bible is very clear, isn't it? Saving for the cause of infidelity, God does not permit divorce. But if someone says that God's not clear on the subject, please help us understand. What would he have to say so we could understand his will for us as it regards to marriage? As we go on tonight and look at subjects where people say the Bible's not clear or disagree with what the Bible teaches, what would God have to say if He wanted you to know that baptism is required for salvation? What would God have to say? What would you have to read in your Bible to come away with the conclusion that baptism is required for salvation? You know, there are a lot of people in the world today who teach you that all you have to do is believe. It's faith alone that saves you. Well, then they throw in, you do have to ask Jesus into your life, and you do have to say a sinner's prayer, but it's really just faith alone. Well, if it is just faith alone, what would he have to say? There are people who tell us, you, know, you don't have to do anything to be saved. If you have to do anything, if you have to make any response on, in your, on your part in order to be saved, then you're earning your salvation, and you can't earn your salvation, so you don't even have to obey. All you got to do is acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and you're saved. Well, if that is the case, and baptism is not required for salvation, what would God have to say to convince you that it is required for salvation? In Hebrews chapter nine, 5, verse 9, we read, And having been perfect, obey Him. Those who obey Jesus are the ones who are saved. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are two things that Peter says you need to do in order to get the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins. One of those is repent. And no one has an, a, an argument with that for the most part. And baptize, be baptized. They're conjunct, joined with a conjunction there. I think I remember my English. I think that's a conjunction, that three-letter word, and. And both of those things are required in order to have remission of sins. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Paul was told, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Why? Because you're already saved? Because your sins have already been forgiven? No. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul was said, Paul was told, when you are baptized, your sins are washed away. 
In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. I had to go out the other night, or the other day, I guess it was, and, and meet Nikki. She had forgot something at the house, and so we met up in a Baptist church parking lot. And their sign is sort of a triangle facing the road, and we see it every time we drive by there. I hadn't seen the backside of that sign, so I, we did our little handoff there in the parking lot, and I turned around, and as I turned around, the backside of that sign had Mark 16, verse 15. It said, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I so much wanted to take a big note out there and tape it to the sign and say, Read verse 16. I shall be saved. Jesus said, go and teach. And he said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. But there's so many people who say, well, no, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. What would Jesus have had to say if baptism's not required for salvation? Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 26. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How did you get into Christ? How did you put on Christ? Through baptism. Baptism. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, this addresses that argument that, well, if you have to do anything, you're earning your salvation. Titus 3, verse 5 says, No, you're not saved by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Baptism is how you're saved. In James chapter 2, verse 24, it says, You see then that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And we could go on and on and on, but one more. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Christ. And so the question for those who would disagree with the idea that baptism is required for salvation what would God have had to say for you to believe that baptism is required? Baptism is not required. The Bible doesn't teach that. Well, what would the Bible have to say to convince you that baptism is required for salvation? And the Bible also is confusing to some folks. And some folks say that the Bible doesn't teach that you can fall away from, from sal your salvation. That once you're saved, you're always saved. That once you become a Christian, there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. And it's closely connected with this idea of faith-only salvation that we just talked about. Because folks say, well, if there's nothing I need to do in order to earn my salvation or to obtain my salvation, then there's nothing I need to do to keep my salvation. They go hand in hand. If all you have to do is believe, you don't have to repent, you don't have to do anything, you just have to believe in order to be saved, then all you need to do to stay saved is just remain, keep your faith in Christ. It doesn't really matter how you live. Tell all the lies you want, cheat on your taxes all you want, steal all you want, murder all you want, it says. Commit uh, fornication all you want. Preachers are on record saying it doesn't matter how many times you commit these sins. In fact, you could die in the act of committing these sins and you're going to go to heaven. Well, what would the Bible have to say if, he want, if God wanted you to know that you can lose your salvation? 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning of verse 1 says, 
Now the Spirit speaking expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. There are some folks who are going to depart from the faith. And they're going to give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And they're going to speak lies and hypocrisy. These people were in the faith, and they departed from the faith. They've lost their salvation. 2 Peter chapter 2. If that's not clear enough for you, 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 20, says, For after, if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing pollutions of the world. And they've become entangled again. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. They've lost their salvation. The Bible's clear on that. In James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, now we're talking about brethren here who wander from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The brother who wanders away is in danger of death. That's how serious it is. Can you lose your salvation the Bible says you can. And the Bible gives us examples of folks in the first century who did. We talked about Simon the sorcerer this morning in our Bible class in Acts chapter 8, verse 13. Simon, who believed and was baptized, in verse 22, he's told that he needed to repent of his wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of his heart would be forgiven him. Simon had fallen away. Paul mentions some in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 that had fallen away, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander's faith had been made shipwreck. They'd lost their salvation. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus has a stern warning to the church there. And Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except you repent. The Bible is clear. You can fall away. But for those who would say that you can't, how could God be clearer so that you could understand that you can lose your salvation? The antagonist who wants to claim that the Bible is not condemning or not uh, uh, giving the, permit, the uh, possibility that a Christian could fall away. They need to come up with a way to how God would say it any clearer. We could go on and on. We could address the topic of limited atonement that Christ just died for those he was going to save. He didn't die for all. We could go on and talk about vocal music in our worship and not instrumental music in our worship. How could God be any clearer than Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, where he told us to speak to ourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord? How could he be any clearer than that? 
We could talk about the fact that the Old Testament is not binding today. There's still folks who want to, to observe the Old Testament. We could look at passages like Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. How could God be any clearer on these subjects? What would He have to say for us to understand His will? Well, this, this sermon has been an easy one for us, hasn't it? We've been pretty smug in our seats and relaxed. We think about things that we all agree on and think about how clear the Scriptures are on them. But it needs to be personal before we quit. We can't get off this easy tonight. I want to tell you and ask you, how would God have to be any clearer? What would He have to say so that you would understand that you'll have to give an answer in judgment for, and you insert your sin here? You know, I'm afraid as we live our lives and we can see the error in the religious world around us, what about us in our lives? Are there things in our lives that we sort of give ourselves a pass on by saying, well, that's a little fuzzy? Or, well, I'm not doing what I should do, but maybe God will give me a pass in this area. What would God have to say for us to understand that He's not going to give me a pass? And He's not going to give you a pass. That we need to be aligning our lives in every aspect of our lives. Whether that be in the things that we do, the things that we say, or as we mentioned last week about the Pharisees, the things that we think, the condition of our heart, what would God have to say to help us realize that we'll give an account for the way that we live our lives? We could look at others and say, boy, they better straighten up, but what about me? And what about you? What would God have to say to convince us that we're going to give an account on the day of judgment? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 says very clearly, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul says we need to understand the will of the Lord. That means that I can know what God wants for me in my life. It's not gray. It's not fuzzy. I know, and I can know, based upon what He's revealed to me in His Word, what He wants from me. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul says... In a bigger context, but the general, the general concept is true here. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I've before written already. That by which you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul wrote, the inspired writers wrote in such a way that we can understand what God's will is. And so we won't have an excuse on the day of judgment. God, I didn't know what your will was. It was too hard. You didn't tell us what you wanted. No, he's told us what he wants. We can understand it in His Word. And He's told us very clearly that we're going to give an account for the way that we live. Ephesians chapter, or Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 that Mark read for us. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. If you're not living like you should tonight, and you're thinking, well, maybe God's will is a little bit fuzzy on that. But it's just too hard to understand God's will. What would God ha have to say to convince you that you can understand His will? Well, I know what His will says, and I know I should make a change some point in my life, but 
I don't know. Maybe, he, maybe God will just overlook that. Maybe he'll realize that well, I was good in a lot of other areas. Maybe he'll let me slide. What will God have to say to convince you that you need to make a correction? It's clear, isn't it? The scriptures are clear. The problem isn't in what God has revealed to me. Maybe the problem with you. It's not that it's not been clear. It's not that, it's that it is that we haven't been willing to accept it. And we haven't been willing to submit to God's will. Let us make uh, every effort to be what God would have us to be. Let us submit in every aspect of our lives so that we can be pleasing to Him. If you're here tonight and there's anything that we can do to help you spiritually, will you let us know while we stand and sing?